Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. A new day, new opportunities, new challenges, but Jesus is always moving with eyes on the prize. And what's the prize? The salvation of people that He created that were separated from Him by their sin, who He came to redeem, to pay the price of redemption and atone for their sins so they could be reconciled to Him. In today's broadcast, we have a new two-part study from Pastor Sam entitled, The Truth Will Set You Free. We're looking at the first 32 verses of John chapter 8. And in our text today, Jesus refuses to condemn the woman caught in adultery, he defends his own witness regarding himself, and he predicts his departure. So let's listen in and see what he has to tell us. Chapter seven was a difficult one for Jesus as his brothers at home, well, expressed their unbelief in him. And then there's the increasing hostility of the religious leaders as Jesus goes up for the Feast of Tabernacles. They accused him of two capital crimes, breaking the Sabbath. How did he do that? Oh yeah, he healed a guy who hadn't walked for 38 years and told him to take up his bed and walk. And the, the religious leaders see him walking through the temple courts and they're like, hey you, you're not allowed to carry your bed when you're you know, in the temple and on the Sabbath. And he's like, hey, well, the guy who healed me told me to take my bed and I'm walking. So anyway, they did not take lightly to that. And then they claimed that he claimed to be one with the Father. The charge for that is blasphemy. And by the way, were Jesus not the Son of God and God the Son, that would have been blasphemous and idolatrous and everything else worthy of death. But Jesus is the Son of God and he is the Savior of the world and he was with the Father and the Father was went with him. Well, all of that uh, brings us to the end of chapter 7 where the very last words were, and everyone went to his own house. Everyone here means everyone but Jesus. Because chapter 8 verse 1 says, but Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives. I like that. They all go home to eat and fellowship and sleep. Jesus ascends the Mount of Olives to spend the evening in prayer with the Father, something he often did, something Judas knew he'd be doing, and that's how Judas was able to lead the enemies to Jesus. Well, early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. A new day, new opportunities, new challenges, but Jesus is always moving with eyes on the prize. And what's the prize? The salvation of people that he created that were separated from him by their sin, who he came to redeem, to pay the price of redemption and atone for their sins so they could be reconciled to him and reconciled to the Father through him. Well, as he shares with the multitudes of hungry disciples, and I mean hungry spiritually this time, we're immediately confronted with weirdness from the scribes and Pharisees. We see in them the radical danger of religion without a relationship with the true and living God. We see the danger of the law in the hands of the lawless hypocrites 
who use it to condemn not just the guilty, but the innocent as well. We read in verse 3, Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they'd set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that, we, that she should be stoned or such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear the woman just a pawn in their horrible game, trying to ensnare Jesus. And in this case, to pit him against Moses because Moses' law, which is actually the law of God, we call it Moses' law because God gave it to Israel through Moses. He gave it to Moses and to them. And well, we have that same law available to us. So they have the law of Moses. And what they're trying to do is set a trap for Jesus. If he says, hey, let her go. Well, then he's not keeping the law. And if he says stoner, well, then he's not the merciful and gracious person that everyone's come to understand him to be. Capital offense, by the way, adultery in that day. Things have changed a lot today. It's a fling or a thing or one of those things. But in that day and under their law, if someone committed adultery... They were to be put to death, but there's something missing here, and it should be obvious to all. They bring her, but here's the law, Leviticus 20.10. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. They bring her saying she was caught in the very act, but where's the guy? And, and, and listen, there's always been a double standard, but this way crosses any kind of double standard. This is a capital crime for which they are accusing her, and they bring stones. They want a stoner, and they want Jesus to approve that. And in the midst of that, Jesus just looks down and, and begins to draw on the ground. The finger that carved into those stones, the Ten Commandments, one of them being, thou shall not commit adultery. That finger's writing again on stony ground. We don't know what he wrote. Lots of people have lots of suggestions. I won't add to that mess. Whatever he wrote, the time and, well, what he has to say next was enough. So when they continued asking him, verse 7, he raised himself up and said to them, he who was without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. There's something else in the law. And when you're not sensitive to it, you miss a lot. It's why we study from Genesis to Revelation, because when you have the backstory, all these things are just so much brighter and, and filled not just with light, but practical application. The law said the one bringing the accusation had to be willing to cast the first stone. This, by the way, is why Joseph refuses to make an example of Mary when he actually believes, though he can't understand how, she must have been with someone else. She comes up pregnant, they're engaged, he knows he hasn't been with her. He can only assume the worst, and yet he's not able to 
to really believe it. And, and there's no way he is going to publicly accuse her and cast a stone at her. Why? Even though he thinks she's committed that sin, he's not willing to condemn her. I love him for that, and, and you should as well. Well, he does get an angelic visitation, and, uh, and uh, it's enough. Hey, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid to take to you, uh, marry your wife, marry as your wife. It's coming up because, well, you know, Christmas is only weeks away now. And, and so all of that to say, there was no one there wanting to cast the first stone. It's just the mob, you know, a mob will all get together and all shout and all get crazy, but... When you say, okay, one of you, whoever's sinless out, let's say you step up and get it going for us. And so when all that happens, when they heard it, verse 9, being convicted by their conscience, they went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. That phrase, convicted by their conscience, is oh so important today. When I was young, the Ten Commandments were in the schools. They were everywhere. The Bibles were everywhere. Everyone had one. Doesn't mean they all read it. Doesn't mean everyone who read it believed it. But you rarely would go somewhere and visit someone where they didn't have a Bible. And in the South, where I spent some years growing up, they always put it on the, you know, the great big Bible. They always put it out on the coffee table. I had a sneaking suspicion that that would be put away when we left. But it was just common. And today, you know, it's not in the schools and there's all these things and there's an uproar over it. But listen. God wrote his law in the hearts of men. He gave everyone a conscience. Paul will later write in Romans that those who have the law will be judged by the law and those without the law will be judged apart from the law. Here's the key. We'll be judged by a righteous and just judge who never gets it wrong, who tests motivations, who understands our our desires and our passions and, and he knows exactly why we do what we do. But my conscience was always active, and it is possible to suppress it. It's possible to sear it, but everyone has a conscience. And here's how we're dealing with that today. Someone does something, and there's a ping within that just says, you know what, I shouldn't have done that. That just isn't right. And then they talk to their friends and their friends, oh, everybody does it. It's a big corporation. Everybody takes from them or, or, or they do something immoral or, or something, you know, in, in some other realm. And they're like, hey, that's no big deal. Listen, conscience says, yeah, it's a big deal. Guilt says, yeah, it's a, a big deal. Shame says, yeah, it's a big deal. And how are we dealing with conscience and, and shame and guilt? We're telling people not to stress over it. Not we're as in you and I. No, we're saying stress. Do stress over your sin. Do, do trip over it until you figure it out. I need to cast myself on the mercy of the only one who can save me from myself and save me from my sin. So she's caught in the act. He says, hey, whoever's without sin, cast the first stone. They're convicted, not by the law, as they were willing to stone her under the law, the law isn't about conscience. The law is necessary for the one who won't respond to conscience. And they went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, 
Where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? The word woman here, by the way, is one of respect. He's not dissing her or putting her down. She's ashamed. She's there in the midst of all these people. And, and, and listen, he just says, woman, where are your, those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, listen, Lord, calls her woman, speaks tenderly to her, says, where's the accusers? Where are the condemners? There aren't any left, Lord. And by the way, Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He was the only one who could have condemned her. But he doesn't accuse her. And he doesn't condemn her because she's already guilty and everybody knows it. By the way, Jesus didn't condemn her because he didn't come to condemn her, but that the world through him might be saved. That's so important today because he's not here to condemn us, but he is here to call us to repentance. That's the other side of that coin. He didn't condemn her, but he did call her to repentance. How so? He said, go and sin no more. That's what he'll be saying to some of us today. Because, you know, there's, well, and I'll read you a list later. You probably won't be on it, but it's possible one or two of those things. That one or two points in your life. But, but here's the thing. Jesus comes to convict us of our sin. The enemy comes to condemn us for our sin. What's the difference? It's, it's obvious. Jesus wants us to confess because if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The enemy brings us to the, the law, and he points us to the law. Jesus brings us to the cross, where he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But he does say, go and sin no more. Well, he came that the world through him might be saved. Galatians 5.19 has a list that includes adultery and fornication among a list of sins, which he concludes that little section, saying, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's a lengthy list, but I spared you it because there's another. And if I don't find you on this one or you don't find yourself, I can give you some reading material in scripture that will help you out. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, the Apostle Paul writes this to the church at Corinth. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And listen. That's a list, and that's why I chose this one, that you're likely to see yourself on. Do you know you don't have to have ever stolen anything to be a thief at heart? The sin of covetousness is the sin that leads to stealing. So you could be like those religious leaders that Jesus was messing with, or they were messing with him. You could be like them and say, I never stole anything in my life. But the question is, isn't, did you ever steal anything? It's, did you ever think about stealing it? Would you have done it if you could get away with it? And, and here's the point. 
You don't have to commit the act to be guilty in the sight of God because he looks on the heart. He knows what we're thinking. He knows our motivations. He knows what we do and why we do it. He knows what we don't do and why we don't do it. So you may not, and I hope you've never been, a fornicator or idolater or homosexual or sodomite or adulterer, but lots of thieves and lots of drunkards and lots of revilers and lots of extortioners among us. And, and, and here's the thing. If, if that were it, if he's saying, hey, you done those things, you're done. Well done someday. But he says, such were some of you. I love that. He's saying, this is, this is who you were. This is how you lived. This is what you did. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. To be washed, we're washed in the water of the word. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed to your word. Sanctified can mean two things, washed or set apart. Here it means set apart because he already used washed. To be sanctified means to be set apart, not just from sin, but for him. It isn't just saved from that, it's saved for this. And this is him. And then, justified. We have that play on words. God deals with me just as if I'd never sinned. How did he justify us? How did he wash us? How did he sanctify us? In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Listen, if you're toying with sin today, even if it's just in thought, it will become a word or a deed. It will become an action. If you're watching things you know you shouldn't and, and you never act upon them or act out as a result of them, you're still sinning against God. And best deal is to, to confess that today. I love that it's communion because this is a little bit of a hard passage. But there's an opportunity at the end of it to confess, knowing if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Well, Jesus spoke to them again, verse 12, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. It's light or darkness. It's life or death. And he lets us choose. Those who don't love the light is because they love the darkness. They won't come to the light. We read early in John, lest their deeds be exposed as evil. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Show me where I'm standing. Show me where I'm heading. But listen, the word made flesh, he doesn't just, point to the light or point to the destination. He doesn't just say there is a way. He is the light of the world. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. Well, the Pharisees therefore say to him, verse 13, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Now, we dealt with this in chapter 5, but in case you weren't here, or in case you'd already nodded off by that part, you woke up refreshed, but you're like, man, I wish I had heard the rest of that. It's online for you. But important to say, the word true here doesn't mean honest. No, Jesus is always telling the truth. They're saying it's insufficient. 
in the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything had to be established. Now, if Jesus tells you something, it's true without any other witness because Jesus never lies. Can't say that of anyone else, you see. Well, anyway, they say, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. It's not sufficient. Jesus answered and said, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. It is sufficient. It is enough. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I came from and where I'm going. Listen. Jesus meant it when he said he didn't come to condemn. And we have evidence here and for the rest of this, well, this study of his amazing, remarkable patience. Because back in John 5, they were on the same track, asking the same things and making the same accusations. And he says, listen, I'll give you some witnesses. John the Baptist, my works, the Father, the Scriptures. John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His works, well, they were prophesied in the Old Testament and he was doing all of them. He was living out what the Old Testament said the Messiah would do when he came. The Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, he said at Jesus' baptism. And then the scriptures, search the scriptures, Jesus will say to them and he'd say it to us. For in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. He's already given this gang four witnesses, and now they're saying, hey, we need a witness. It's like when he does four miraculous things, and they're like, we need a sign from heaven. Listen, it was all, every sign was a sign from heaven, because he came down from heaven, as he said over and over and over and over in John 6, to do the will of the Father. And this is the will of the Father, that none he came for would perish, that none who heard his voice would perish. You judge, he says, verse 15, the only way men can judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone. I am with the Father who sent me. Note, he never backs off of this idea that he and the Father are one. They think alike, they speak alike, they deal alike. If you've seen me, he'll say, you've seen the Father. Want to know what he's like? Watch me, listen to me. Pay attention to what I'm doing, Jesus would say. It's also written in your law, and here it is, that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. So, he leaves out John the Baptist and the scriptures because he's, he's honing his message to the things that are really going to, well, take them over the edge, if you will. Not that that's his goal. His goal is to win them. But if he doesn't win them, they're going to grow increasingly hostile. And uh, I'm going to encourage you to make sure you read the rest of the chapter. And I'm going to encourage you not to do that right now. But uh, let's finish this. But you read the rest because that's what we're going to look at next week. It's sort of like the other side of this whole thing. And we're going to see some things in Jesus that are a little bit surprising and a little bit shocking and in some ways delightful. In today's study, Pastor Sam mentioned that Jesus kept his eyes on the prize. Hebrews 12.2 tells us, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Now in some translations, looking unto Jesus is rendered as fixing our eyes on Jesus. Jesus kept his eyes on the prize, you and I, and he endured things that would have turned everyone else away. But now he asks us to do the same, for us to run our race with our eyes locked on him. He is to be our focus, our inspiration, and our example. Not because that's required of us, because even the best of us will take our eyes off of him from time to time. Just study the life of Peter and you'll see what I mean. No, the reason we do this is because nothing else in this world will ever be more worthy of our focus, attention, and inspiration than the joy that is set before us, our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you, and until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.